really a great uh, pleasure for me to be here this morning with you to talk about Lyme disease in the nervous system. We need to be experts here because we're in an epicenter of Lyme disease. I'm going to begin with a background that will discuss some general concepts about Lyme disease and spend a little bit of time on that. I'm going to talk about the recognized clinical neurologic syndromes and then aspects of diagnosis and treatment of neurological Lyme disease. A little bit on current thinking on pathophysiology. At the very end, I'll say a few words about chronic Lyme disease, post-Lyme disease syndrome that often has neurological elements to it, and then briefly end with, with some gaps in future issues. So we know that Lyme disease is a bacterial infection due to a spirochete, Borrelia burgdorferi, that responds to antibiotics. You need antibiotics and it should respond to that. B. burgdorferi is a spirochete. There are some lessons to be learned from that because there are other human spirochetal infections and they share certain properties in common. So it's well worth reviewing that a little bit. Remember, sister infections are syphilis due to treponema pallidum, leptospirosis due to leptospira interrogans, relaxing fever due to a number of other Borrelia, not Borrelia burgdorferi, but a number of other Borrelia species in addition to Lyme disease. These are the four human spirochetal infections. They share properties in common. So you would expect that Lyme disease would have properties along with these other spirochetal infections. They typically produce clinical disease in stages, and that's how I like to think about Lyme disease. They typically cause relapsing remitting disease, clinical illness that will spontaneously get better without any antibiotic treatment, at least in the early stages. There's a very early bloodstream invasion with these spirochetes where it disseminates and spreads to various body organs. Once you're past that dissemination stage, there aren't a lot of organisms anymore. There are only a very few number of organisms in the later stages, including Lyme disease, which really implicates other factors causing the clinical symptoms, not the spirochetes themselves so much directly, but we believe the host immune inflammatory response to them. And there's always an element of blood vessel involvement with spirochetal infections. There's always an element of vasculopathy, blood vessel injury. And this is interesting because we can occasionally, as rare neurological manifestations, see stroke and vasculitis. So be aware that Lyme disease can produce that. Actually, a degree of a vasculopathy is very common in spirochetal diseases. Now, it's not invariable that people get sick when they get infected with any of these spirochetes. Infection does not need to lead to clinical illness, and the individual may be able to contain it naturally. This is an important concept because it reminds us that seropositivity does not equate to active Lyme infection. All right, it's, a, it's an immune marker that the host immune system has seen B. burgdorferi, but it does not necessarily guarantee that there's an active infection. And all of these spirochetal infections have certain strains, have neurotropism. They're all capable of involving the nervous system. Typically, you see early CNS invasion when you're going to get that early in the spirochetal infection. And then there's latency and persistence. And a small minority of them uh, will turn up with late symptoms in a subset. So in all of these human spirochetal infections, there's the capability of the spirochete getting to the CNS early. Why is that important? You need to be on the alert and thinking about the possibility of CNS 
infection invasion, even in early Lyme disease. And I would make the argument that if the symptoms are there, that should be evaluated and investigated in the Lyme disease patient because it may change your therapeutic approach. It certainly would for me. And for any of these human spirochetal infections, there is no precedent that they require long-term antibiotics. There's no precedent for that. It's not true for any of the other human spirochetal infections. It's not likely true for Lyme disease. But it does dictate doing appropriate penetrating antibiotics if you think you have a sequestered body organ infected, like the central nervous system. Now, we know that Lyme disease is caused by 30 distinct species, but B. burgdorferi sensu stricto, the genospecies in North America, basically is responsible for all the neurological cases. Not true in Europe and Asia, where most of the neurological cases are due to Borrelia guarinii, a genospecies that we don't have here, and a small proportion are due to Borrelia afzelii. And we recognize neurotropic strains. There are some strains of all of these genospecies that are more likely to cause CNS infection. They have neurotropism. Other strains are more likely to cause skin manifestations. Other strains are more likely to cause joint issues. So there are different, different properties that probably play into the clinical picture. Now this is making a very important concept that I'm going to emphasize a little bit. There are differences between Lyme disease in Europe, Asia, and North America. And when you're reading the literature, it's all mixed all together. But keep in mind that that's probably not completely valid. And there are clear differences between North America and Eurasia, and I'll come back to that. So we have different genospecies, typically just one in North America, much more varied in other areas. And for example, Borrelia afzelii typically causes skin manifestations. It has a tropism for skin, whereas Borrelia guarinii is the major cause of neurologic involvement. It has neurotropism. And B. burgdorferi here typically causes arthritic disease. It has tropism for joints. As you know, B. burgdorferi is a very interesting, almost a parasite. It really depends on its environment for nutrition, a very interesting bacteria. It's too bad that we can't use culture. It's too bad. Uh, that has really caused a lot of issues, but we know that it's not practical to culture B. burgdorferi. It takes weeks, you need special media, you need to be very set up. By the time a culture comes back positive, you need to have dealt with the problem clinically. You need to have made your decisions and moved on. It's interesting, very interesting from a research point of view, but unfortunately for the most part, we do not depend on culture to document infection of Lyme disease or clearance of the infection of Lyme disease. That's a shame, but that is the reality. It's not just the tropism that plays a role with regard to different species and genotypic issues, but we believe likely the size of the inoculum, the degree of virulence in the particular strains of B. burgdorferi that somebody was inoculated with, and likely host immune factors also play a role in who gets sick and who doesn't, who gets neurologic disease and who doesn't. Now, we know that this is the most common vector-borne infection in most parts of the world. 
We have about 25,000 to 30,000 cases of Lyme disease presented to the United States each year, gross underreporting, as you probably know, I, I'm guilty of that. The CDC has estimated 300,000 cases annually in the United States, and there may be even more in Europe. Now you can see both genders, all ages, but it clearly peaks in childhood, ages 5 to 14, and ages 40 to 50, slightly greater in the U.S. male predominance that doesn't totally hold up in Europe. Really, it's time spent out of doors on a recreational or vocational basis. And we believe virtually all human transmissions involve a tick bite. And as you know, the hard shell exodi tick has to be feeding to transmit at least B. burgdorferi, maybe not other organisms, but B. burgdorferi for a prolonged period of time, greater than 24 hours, et cetera. And that's the whole basis for the daily tick checks. And again, this is a geographically mapped infection to where you see the tick vectors. So that the bulk of cases come from a limited number of states that really are in the northeast along the coast and a little bit the upper Midwest. And then you do have a third area in the Pacific coast with much smaller numbers, much lower uh, infection rate of the ticks. And this is really the hard shell exodid tick, exodid scapularis in most of the U.S., exodid pacificus in the West, and the uh, soft shell larger ticks do not carry B. burgdorferi. There are different tick vectors in the rest of the world. But it, the cases specifically map to areas where you have the vulnerable tick vector. Now, this is just a diagram that's pointing out differences between North American and Eurasian Lyme disease. First of all, we have only one genospecies that is not the major genospecies in Europe and Asia. The most common extra neural involvement in the U.S. is Lyme arthritis. In Europe, there are peculiar skin manifestations, lymphocytoma and acrodermatitis chronica atrophicans that for all intents and purposes, we don't see here in the United States and early dissemination and late stage skin infection that we don't see in the United States. Neurologic involvement is more common in Europe than in the United States, but the major neurologic syndromes differ in Europe, it's acute, painful radiculoneuritis or Banois syndrome. We certainly see that here. It's a very interesting syndrome, but it's not the major neurologic involvement. The major neurologic involvement of Lyme disease in the United States turns out to be peripheral facial nerve palsy, followed by some of the other syndromes. So the most common neurologic manifestations are different in Eurasia versus North America. And interestingly, the spinal fluid studies are not quite the same. In Eurasia, Lyme disease produces very inflammatory spinal fluid. In some cases, they require intrathecal Lyme antibody production to make a diagnosis. They typically have a very vigorous pleocytosis. It's extremely common to have nonspecific generalized oligoclonal bands, not just IgG, but IgM as well, and nonspecific intrathecal immunoglobulin production, not talking about against B. burgdorferi because they have that, that's specific antibody production, but just intrathecal IgG production, intrathecal IgM production is typically elevated in Eurasian cases of neurological Lyme disease. We don't see that. We don't see that. It's very unusual to have positive oligoclonal bands 
or an elevated IgG index. As a matter of fact, when I'm analyzing spinal fluid, that favors an MS diagnosis, not a neurological Lyme disease diagnosis. And intrathecal anti-B burgdorferi antibodies, even in frank Lyme meningitis here in the United States, the intrathecal specific antibody rate is 60% or less. That would be basically 100% in Eurasian neurological Lyme disease, or neuroborreliosis is the other term that's used. So Europe has more likely to have neurologic involvement, and they have a much more inflammatory spinal fluid than we show here. And they've produced the data that says oral antibiotics seem to work as well as intravenous. Oral doxycycline. Well, if you've broken the blood-brain barrier, it may be okay to use oral antibiotics. We don't feel that's a good idea for central nervous system infection here in the United States. We've had neurologic disease after a course of oral doxycycline. Perhaps this relates back to the much more inflammatory process that you see when Bipigdorferi or Borrelia species invade the CNS when you are dealing with European and Asian strains and genospecies than what we see here in the United States, where we really feel intravenous antibiotics with a cephalosporin-like ceftriaxone are superior, for example, to intravenous penicillin. And intravenous antibiotics, which are much more penetrating, are preferred to an oral regimen, ideally to treat neurologic disease. So I'm just making the point or painting the picture that you need to be aware when you read the literature, it's mixed and matched. When we're reading literature on Lyme disease from Europe, there may be some nuances and differences and perhaps not directly applicable to Lyme disease here in North America. Now, I like to think about Lyme disease in stages. Some people have said there should be two stages. I, I just like the concept of three stages. We certainly have the early local infection, and that's within 30 days of the tick bite, and that is classically the EM, the erythema migraines at the tick bite site. Although we recognize a summertime flu with seroconversion can also represent a very early infection, and I think everybody is aware of that, and if you had a patient in summertime, who developed unusual flu-like illness, you would check them for exposure to Lyme disease. And then the organism which basically multiplied in the skin at the local inoculation site disseminates. And it can disseminate very quickly. And we're typically talking about syndromes that appear within three months of inoculation. And you can see a multifocal EM, which by definition would be the organism had disseminated or certain neurologic syndromes that we'll come back to, rheumatologic issues, and cardiac. Lyme carditis is very rare, but I'm sure you're all aware of the big CDC report of three sudden deaths in young people in their 20s and 30s from presumptive Lyme carditis. So you would be very aware of that at this time, that it seems to be capable um, of doing that. I think the early dissemination syndromes are important because it's telling you that the organism has disseminated in the blood and there would be the possibility it had disseminated to the central nervous system. Makes it more likely that it could have disseminated to the central nervous system. So you would be particularly paying more attention to neurological features in, for example, a multifocal EM. 
that would be very bothersome because by definition you have a patient in whom Bupropioneuroi has disseminated. And then the late stage infection, which may be defined as anything longer than three months, you have some suggestive neurologic syndromes that we'll come back to and Lyme arthritis. So you can actually get neurologic involvement at all three of these stages. You can get neurologic involvement at all three of these stages. As a matter of fact, in, in limited studies, this spirochete can seed the CNS very quickly, concomitant with an EM. So although it's rare, spirochetes have been isolated from completely bland, normal spinal fluid. And there's been an isolation that was virtually simultaneous with appearance of an EM. So just imagine if you have very neurotropic strains and they grow very quickly at the local uh, inoculation site, they might very well disseminate and they might very well be able to get to the CNS very, very quickly. So I would always approach somebody, even at the early local infection stage, as if they had superimposed neurological problems, I would be concerned about the possibility of CNS invasion. And as a neurologist, I would evaluate them appropriately. Because again, it would change my treatment, it would change my treatment. With regard to the early dissemination infection and what are the nervous system syndromes we can see, aseptic meningitis, a viral meningitis. Well, it's obviously not a viral meningitis because Bupropioneuroi is not a virus, it's a bacterium. But it typically produces a milder aseptic viral-like meningitis, not your classic acute bacterial septic meningitis. So we know very well during the summertime if you're evaluating a viral aseptic meningitis, Lyme disease has to be on the table. And it would not be uncommon that you might have a meningitis with facial weakness or even an EM. If I saw meningitis with facial weakness, that would raise to the top of the list the possibility of neurological Lyme disease. Facial nerve palsy. Any of the cranial nerves can be hit as an acute dissemination neurologic involvement due to Lyme disease, but by far and away, the facial nerve is the most common. And I have the term here, Bell's palsy. Well, if I were being an aficionado, Bell's palsy is an idiopathic facial nerve palsy. You didn't find the cause. If it's due to Lyme, it's a Lyme facial nerve palsy. It's not truly a Bell's. We believe most Bell's are due to reactivated herpes, HSV or VZV. Most typically, the facial nerve palsy due to acute disseminated neurological Lyme disease will be associated with a multi-symptom complex. So they'll be presenting with a peripheral facial palsy, like a Bell's, but they'll also be complaining of joint pain or muscle pain or excessive fatigue, or they'll have some headache, or they'll have some stiff neck, or they'll be complaining of some radicular pain. That would be very unusual in an idiopathic Bell's palsy. You don't typically see those other features. So first of all, we know the long-term old data that said 25% of Bell's palsy on Long Island presenting in summertime are due to Lyme disease. So we know that data. We know that data. But if you have a Bell's palsy and it's associated with a multi-symptom complex, that raises the likelihood it reflects neurological Lyme disease, an acute disseminated neurological syndrome. And I consider that tantamount to CNS invasion. So I'm going to tap every one of those patients 
and I will treat facial nerve palsy due to Lyme disease with intravenous antibiotics, not oral. And I know the literature basically from Europe, but I don't think that that can be applied here in the United States. We do see acute painful radiculoneuritis, Banwatts. It's the most striking syndrome. It's just way more unusual than in Europe, where Banwatts is, is, is the most common neurologic acute dissemination manifestation. Often presents with spine pain, pain between the scapula, the shoulder blades. And then it may go on to dermatomal and myotomal symptoms. So scapula winging, dermatomal sensory loss, shooting pain down arms or legs. The interesting thing is this acute painful radiculoneuropathy, which is unusual in the US, the most common neurological manifestation in Europe, has no headache or stiff neck, yet has the most inflammatory spinal fluid will have the highest pleocytosis despite typically not having a headache and stiff neck, which I do not understand at all, at all. But if you spinal tap acute painful radiculoneuritis, you'll find striking abnormalities. And finally, acute dissemination neurological Lyme disease can occasionally present as acute cerebellar syndrome. So if you have somebody presenting typically in summertime, because we know most of the presentations are going to be from May to October in a temperate climate, because that's when the tick vector is most likely to bite the accidental human host. Um, you can, if you have an acute cerebellar syndrome, you should be thinking about neurological Lyme disease as a possibility. And occasionally, you can actually see a frankencephalitis, a meningoencephalitis, a change in level of consciousness behavior in addition to having a meningeal component. So all of these are recognized early dissemination neurologic syndromes of Lyme disease. This is an interesting study, again, from Europe. This would be a great study to do here, but it's interesting. It took 161 European patients with EM and to get into this study, they had to have moderate to severe complaints referable to the nervous system, signs and symptoms, and they all underwent a spinal tap. It turned out that 19% had a pleocytosis, had increased white blood cells, signs of inflammation, if you want to consider it a meningitis. The EM patients with neurologic symptoms and signs that wound up having a CSF pleocytosis and meningitis, that correlated with radicular complaints, shooting pain down arms and legs. A larger EM lesion, which is an interesting phenomenon, was more likely to have nervous system invasion. Meningeal signs, frank stiff neck. A peripheral facial palsy, which is a neurologic, we consider it peripheral nervous system, but Many of those, most of those patients will have abnormal spinal fluid, sleep disturbance, and low back pain. They were not distinguished by headache. They were not distinguished by cognitive complaints. They were not distinguished by vertigo, pins and needles, or marked fatigue. So this is interesting, the neurological complaints that corresponded to having an actual pleocytosis. They were able to culture about 5% had culture-positive CSF. All of them had not had any prior antibiotics. They had no positive CSF cultures in anybody that had prior antibiotics, which is interesting, 
because they wouldn't necessarily have had very potent antibiotics. And when they looked at intrathecal Lyme antibody-specific production, that was found in 68% of those that had a pleocytosis, but they also found intrathecal Lyme antibody production, which is the best indirect measure of CNS seeding, in 8% of those that had a normal white blood cell count, a normal white blood cell count. So I think there are a couple of interesting lessons here. The finding of a pleocytosis, the finding of intrathecal Lyme antibody production, the finding that you could have one and not the other, and the finding that some complaints and features were more likely predictive of nervous system involvement than not. A European study, very interesting to talk about trying to design a study here in the United States. And then when we turn to late stage infection, long after the dissemination, when you have small limited numbers, the most common problem that we see here is a very typically subtle late Lyme encephalopathy. A person who says, I'm able to function, uh, I'm not demented, I'm working, I'm continuing getting up every day, but I'm just not thinking right. I'm just not the way I was. I'm just not as sharp, it's just more difficult for me. It's important to recognize that that may represent a late Lyme encephalopathy that should be worked up and should be treated since patients improve with appropriate antibiotic treatment. But again, it's subtle. And then there's a chronic polyneuropathy manifest by a few shooting pains or pins and needles, which we hardly ever see anymore. I'd be interested to hear if we're seeing more of that here. And then extremely rarely parenchymal involvement, where you have an encephalomyelitis. And these are the very rare patients that can mimic multiple sclerosis, brain tumor, movement disorders like Parkinson's disease. Most of these cases are reported from Europe, very, very few from North America. Very, very few, but can happen, rare. And then some unusual neurologic manifestations. These seem to be age-linked to pediatric and adolescents. A pseudotumor cerebri, benign intracranial hypertension. The patient complains about headache. You look at their disc and they have what look like choked discs, edematous discs, signs of increased intracranial pressure. You tap them and these people will have increased intracranial pressure. Unlike the classic pseudotumor cerebri, benign intracranial hypertension patient where all the other spinal fluid parameters are fine, they're abnormal in these patients. And this appears, uh, this appears to be a kind of age-linked, interesting neurological syndrome. If, and these patients are not typically obese, as you would see in a young female. Uh, they will have abnormal spinal fluid and they will get better with antibiotic treatment. This is important to be aware of. And then rarely cases of psychiatric disease and vascular disease, stroke and vasculitis, can be manifestations of neurological Lyme disease. How do you diagnose? You have to make a clinical decision ultimately based on suggestive signs and symptoms, spine pain. I can't emphasize enough, if you have a patient coming in with brand new severe spine pain, think about neurological Lyme disease as a possibility. I, I think in the last year, a middle-aged woman who had a couple of visits to our emergency room, seen by orthopedists, et cetera, no one ever thought to do a Lyme titer. Turns out she had a Lyme meningitis, got completely better from her horrific 
sudden onset of spine pain, seeing doctors in the ER incapacitated with appropriate antibiotic use. So spine pain is a big clue to think about Lyme disease as a possibility. And is there credible exposure to ticks? If there are, then you should be definitely thinking about Lyme disease. We know that EM is considered a pathognomonic clinical feature. It requires no laboratory data. We know that about half of these patients are going to be seronegative. It's too soon. You don't need any associated laboratory data. But typically, what we rely on is seropositivity. This is the most valuable lab test. It doesn't document active infection, but uh, true positive serology documents valid exposure. Unfortunately, culture is not practical. PCR is not useful, unfortunately, in spinal fluid. The yield is so poor, I don't routinely do it. If you were going to do it in spinal fluid, you probably should pellet it down. It may have validity in, in synovial fluid, by the way, if you tap off a joint. And unfortunately, we have no established antigen tests. So all the direct infection markers are not very helpful. We're using an indirect marker of exposure, serology, positive antibodies. So these can be done on blood and on spinal fluid. And if we are spinal tapping somebody for possible Lyme, we always do paired analysis because you're trying to address intrathecal Lyme antibody production. We know that the Lyme antibody test is classically a two-tier process, a nonspecific first-tier test followed by confirmation with Western immunoblot. The first-tier test does have a credible false positive rate. So generally, if I'm seeing a low first-tier ELISA and not a very good story, that is probably going to be a false positive. Why? We have mouse spirochetes that can cross-react if somebody's had dental work or, or brushed hard. A number of the antigens are completely nonspecific. If somebody has a marked flagellin, P41, everybody has that, or heat shock, you might get a, 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 a first-tier uh, test false positive, um, but much less likely to see it confirmed on Western blot, immunoblot, if it was a true false positive. That has much higher specificity, although, again, it's a qualitative read, as you know. There is a false positive rate with immunoblot. And the CDC has recommended not using IgM after four to six weeks. I can tell you that I personally do not agree with that. I don't understand how you could argue that in a Lyme endemic area that you would ignore an IgM in somebody who was symptomatic and Lyme was a credible uh, issue. But that is their, their statement. Okay. The IgM Western blot becomes positive first at about two weeks after inoculation. There's a subset of patients who get adequate treatment and remain IgM seropositive. That is not believed to represent persistent infection. That is believed to represent an immunological variation. The next thing that becomes positive is the uh, first tier ELISA, and it, then it will be followed by IgG Western blot. We know that the only standardization has been to what you consider a positive second tier immunoblot interpretation. The first tier test has not been standardized. We also know that if you interfere with antibiotics as the patient is making this antibody response, you can block it, you can abort the full humoral immune response. And how do I know that? There are well-documented cases of EM, spirochete documented to be present. They get antibiotic treatment, 20 to 30% never seroconvert. 
So they absolutely had Lyme disease, but 20 to 30% never become Lyme antibody positive after they got the antibiotics. So there's a scenario for early abortive antibiotics creating a seronegative. Important just to keep that in mind. This is how immunoblot has been standardized. They say if you're looking at IgM, there are three bands we care about. You have to have two. If we're looking at IgG, there are 10 bands we care about. You have to have at least five. So that's the standardization. If you read a positive immunoblot, that's what it has to hold to. And remember, it's a qualitative subjective read in laboratories. And again, they say ignore an IgM if somebody's ill more than four to six weeks. And they do not recommend going on to blot if the first tier is negative. It's rare, but I've had cases that were Western immunoblot positive and first tier negative. So if I care about getting an answer, I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to do both. I'm going to do ELISA and Western blot. It's not common, but it definitely happens. Absolutely definitely happens. The Lyme C6 peptide I'm a little bit disappointed with. I'd be interested in hearing your experience in the Q&A. This is basically a recombinant protein uh, based on a VLSE surface protein that's very unique. Uh, this was supposed to be a single tier test that might replace the two tier. It doesn't seem to be able to. Works better in Europe than here. Certainly seeing a positive C6 antibody test would be good data that the person was exposed to Lyme disease and created an antibody response to unique surface proteins, but I just haven't found it that helpful. We know that Lyme antibodies persist for years, so the concept of I treated somebody, let me check antibodies in two months, is meaningless, is meaningless. There's no point in doing that. You're, if you've mounted a strong antibody response, you'll remain positive for a long time. It will slowly dwindle down. Even within the spinal fluid, intrathecal Lyme antibody production, once you have it, will last for months to years, but it shouldn't spike up. It should gradually dwindle down. But following antibody titers frequently to judge treatment response doesn't make sense to me. There have been some unvalidated tests. The Lyme urinary antigen test from Igenix has been removed. I don't send any tests to Igenix. Uh, there's really not confirmation of any concept of cystic or L forms. Uh, looking at natural killer cells, there's really not credible data that that has meaningful input, in my opinion. For neurological Lyme disease, spinal fluid is critical. The single most important test is, is there intrathecal Lyme antibody production. But remember, the spinal fluid is the blood of the brain and the spinal cord. You're analyzing a dozen different tests. It's not just for Lyme disease. It's the extracellular fluid of the brain and the spinal cord. Is there an abnormal increase in cells, in WBCs? Is there a pleocytosis? That's neurologically abnormal. That says there's an inflammatory condition affecting the CNS. Is there an increased protein when you have no good reason for that? So you're looking for spinal fluid abnormalities. Neuroimaging, typically not very helpful, only abnormal in about a quarter of neurologic cases and typically nonspecific. Electrophysiologic testing can be helpful if it documents a polyradicular neuropathy. Cognitive function testing for late Lyme encephalopathy help to say there's an objective abnormality and can be repeated months after antibiotics. Remember the data. Patients that complain about cognitive difficulties, it's an absolute 50-50 split. 50% of the time, there's no objective cognitive deficit. It's completely subjective. 
because there are so many things that can screw up thinking and memory and cognition. Not getting enough sleep, being depressed, being under stress, trying to handle too many things. The cognitive function testing says whether it's objective and identifies it, and that can be followed up on. This is just from Stony Brook, and it's looking at how we would do paired Lyme antibodies. And if you look at that very top, there's a fluid interpretation is spinal fluid. That's reactive. The optical density reading is 0.287. The reactive cutoff was 0.151. The spinal fluid and serum are run at the same time. So the serum OD, optical density, is 0.236. That's also reactive. But you notice the optical density reading is higher in spinal fluid than in serum. And the actual antibody index, which is the ratio, the optical density ratio of spinal fluid to serum is 1.22. That's intrathecal antibody production. Actually, in the Stony Brook lab, an antibody index of 90%, 0.9 or higher is considered intrathecal Lyme antibody production. And in this case, we will often do paired immunoblot on spinal fluid and serum. And there are five IgG bands in serum, but seven IgG bands in spinal fluid. This person had central nervous system seeding documented in their spinal fluid. They had intrathecal Lyme antibody production, proportionately greater immune response against B. burgdorferi in spinal fluid than serum. That is documentation. They had central nervous system seeding. They had neurologic infection. Brain spect. This is done a lot at Columbia. I don't think it's particularly helpful. BrainSpec looks at blood flow, cerebral perfusion. It's reported as abnormal in neurological Lyme cases, various patterns, and improved post-antibiotics. That may very well be valid. The problem is I don't think there's any specific Lyme pattern that I can be fairly confident. Things like chronic fatigue syndrome, depression, trauma, ischemia, drug use can all give you an abnormal brain spec. So maybe it's a little bit helpful, but I do not routinely use it. I don't think there's any pathognomonic spec picture. The therapy. For EM, doxycycline, amoxicillin, or cefuroxime axotil, typically given for up to 21 days. For neurologic disease, we prefer ceftriaxone, two grams once a day, and we prefer 28 days. Now, why 28 days? You have a New England Journal article that randomized neurologic patients and said two weeks and four weeks are exactly the same. And I know that data. Early on, we had three to four patients who failed three weeks of IV antibiotics with neurological Lyme disease. That led us to go to 28 days. We don't feel we've had any failure with 28 days. So anecdotally, I understand the New England Journal article, we will treat for 28 days for neurological Lyme disease. We talked to patients about emitter pick line. It's infused, it's an outpatient procedure. They can go about their business. The infusion is over in half an hour. For the rest of the day, they're free. We counsel them on C. difficile colitis, and we recommend they go on acidophilus. We counsel them on the possibility their line may get um, clotted off or infected if there's any pain, swelling. That needs to be immediately addressed. We counsel, although I've never seen a case that ceftriaxone is uh, excreted in biliary sludge, and there were some examples of adolescent females who developed gallbladder disease with several weeks of, of uh, ceftriaxone. I've never seen a case, but we do counsel patients. I do not do any routine blood works, and by personal preference, I treat for 28 days, and that's what we typically do at Stony Brook. 
We consider facial palsy and late Lyme encephalopathy to be CNS infection states, and we treat with IV antibiotics. Few words about pathophysiology. I said that once you're past the early dissemination stage, there are not a lot of organisms, and they don't cause a lot of damage. When you look at the central nervous system, the peripheral nerves, the muscle, it's not markedly injured or destroyed, and you can't even find organisms in the uh, nerve type tissue. This really suggests that immune factors are important, and Bieber-Dorferi can clearly activate the immune system, including causing some autoreactivity, and that is believed to be the cause of a lot of the symptoms. We're aware of other exoted tick-borne pathogens. HGA and Babesia would be the major ones that we might do serology on to bolster exoded tick exposure. We know about others. There's always the possibility that somebody could have a tick bite exposure and an unknown pathogen is causing their issues. Um, this is one slide on a very thorny area, chronic Lyme disease, post-treatment Lyme disease. There is no defined definition, which is sad. We know that about 10 to 20% of treated Lyme patients will experience prolonged fatigue, pain, joint and muscle aches. More likely if they get delayed treatment, if they have more prominent symptoms and signs, if they're not showing complete recovery by four months. And in a small minority, that continues to last. This has been seen with other infections. The etiology is not clear. It appears not to be antibiotic responsive. Now, I think a very important issue in that patient is did they receive a penetrating antibiotic regimen on the possibility that they had a sequestered compartment like the CNS involved? And if they didn't, then maybe they haven't been appropriately treated. That's one thing to investigate, and clearly I would. But this could be a post-infectious immune-mediated syndrome. And certainly there's precedent from chronic Lyme arthritis, which appears to be a non-antibiotic uh, responsive immune-mediated syndrome. And there are some recent limited studies that have suggested a TH17 response, increased interleukin-23, uh, association with autoantibodies, increased interferon alpha. These are very scattered, small-scale studies. You could have a whole separate talk on chronic Lyme post-Lyme disease syndrome. So final slide, gaps in future issues. We would like to be able to have a definitive diagnosis of, neuro of neurologic infection. To me, for the neurologic component, spinal fluid is key. Spinal fluid is going to give us an answer. Can we get a diagnostic pattern perhaps by more sophisticated studies, such as proteomal studies. Can we have a better understanding of the neurotropic strains, and maybe there would be a way to um, assess for that very early on and say, this person, we don't have to worry about neurologic involvement. This person, we need to be very worried about neuro neurologic involvement. Optimized therapy, a penetrating regimen, there's a lot of different treatments being done out there. We would love to be able to define this was an effective antibiotic regimen. It penetrated well, and it cleared up the definitive diagnostic abnormalities. And then understanding the patients that have persistent symptoms, which is likely to be sort of a grab bag, sort of a grab bag. Multiple etiologies may be involved in that because we don't even have our act together sufficiently to define it. Very interesting, problematic area.